Welcome to the Classic Film Club with Richard Kuypers. Hello and welcome to the Classic Film Club, the podcast dedicated to taking a fresh look at famous films of the past and shining a light on less famous, overlooked and forgotten films that are well worth discovering. I'm Richard Kuypers, a film critic for the international trade paper Variety, film festival programmer and documentary producer, inviting you to join me on this cinematic adventure of discovery and celebration. Today, I want to take a look at one of the most famous films ever made. From 1962 until 2012, it was number one in the top 10 films of all-time critics poll conducted by the respected British magazine Sight and Sound, and it's widely regarded as the best debut feature ever made. Orson Welles was just 25 years old when he directed, co-wrote and played the lead role in Citizen Kane, which was released in May 1941, six months before the US entered World War II. Telling the life story of fictional media tycoon and political aspirant Charles Foster Kane, Citizen Kane was nominated for nine Oscars, winning only one for the original screenplay by Wells and Herman J. Mankiewicz. It performed well at the box office without being a smash hit, and it got mostly positive reviews, including one from Newsweek who praised Orson Welles as, quote, the best actor in the history of acting. On the other hand, the Tatler said Wells's movie was the well-intentioned, muddled, amateurish thing one expects from highbrows. By the early 1950s, it was largely a forgotten film. But thanks to screenings on the newfangled device called television and an influential 1956 essay by film critic Andrew Sarris in Film Culture magazine, Citizen Kane began its re-emergence. First, it became a great American film. Within a few years, it was frequently being hailed as the greatest film of all time. Other films have claimed that title in countless critics and public polls over the years. Gone with the Wind, Battleship Potemkin, Raging Bull, Vertigo, the list goes on. But none quite have the same aura and mystique as Citizen Kane. When critics and publicists want to describe the best of a kind, they still use the term the Citizen Kane of... Night of the Living Dead has been called the Citizen Kane of zombie movies. The Sex Pistols film, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, was promoted as the Citizen Kane of rock movies. And at the very other end of the scale, we have midnight movie favourite The Room being described as the Citizen Kane of bad films. Few motion pictures have inspired such awe and intrigue as Citizen Kane. Awe at the immense story it tells and the techniques it employs and intrigue about every aspect of its production, from the moment it began filming in secret with largely unknown actors, before being released amid boycotts from some cinema chains, and fear of lawsuits from William Randolph Hearst, the media tycoon whose business and private life has some very strong parallels with the central character. Hearst prohibited any of his newspapers from even mentioning the film. We could spend forever talking about that, but let's get to the film itself. How does Citizen Kane shape up almost 80 years later? How well has it stood the test of time? And what can we take from it today? 
I hadn't seen Citizen Kane for about 20 years before I gave it a refresher run just recently. What struck me right away, after the RKO Radio Pictures logo, one of the best of all time and I never get tired of looking at it, is the opening credit, a Mercury production by Orson Welles. Immediately, it has the air of an event, something that's not merely a movie, but the unveiling of a major work of art. And in 1941, it was, with Wells already being hailed as a young genius. In 1937, at the age of 22, he and John Houseman founded the Mercury Theatre Repertory Company in New York. A year later, Wells frightened the pants off listeners with the Mercury's radio production of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, convincing many that Earth was actually being invaded by Martians. As the first images of Citizen Kane appear, we could be forgiven for thinking we're in Gothic horror territory. The camera lingers over shots of Xanadu, a dark, foreboding castle guarded by a huge gate with the letter K and a no trespassing sign. With Bernard Herrmann's brilliant score setting a sombre tone, we could be looking at the House of Usher or Dracula's Castle. Then, after two minutes and 30 seconds, we see a close-up of an old man's lips. He utters the film's first line of dialogue, and it's one of the most celebrated and discussed words in cinema history. That word is Rosebud, of course. Rosebud is the dying word of Charles Foster Kane, and it holds the key to understanding so much about the life of this extremely rich, powerful, and ruthless man. It's like the riddle of the Sphinx. Why did Kane say it? What does it mean? The task of finding out goes to newsreel reporter Jerry Thompson, played by William Allen in his only significant acting role. Before Thompson begins the detective work of interviewing everyone close to Kane, we're given a rousing account of the dead man's life in the form of a newsreel, such as audiences used to watch in cinemas for a small admission fee in the days before television. We learn about Kane's astronomical wealth and the building of Xanadu, with 20,000 tonnes of marble, enough artefacts to fill 10 museums, and a collection of animals to rival Noah's Ark. The newsreel narrator tells us that some people called Kane a communist. Others thought he was a fascist. Loved and hated in equal measure, he met Hitler and played down any concerns about war. He was married and divorced twice, once to US President's niece Emily Monroe Norton, and once to Susan Alexander, a singer of modest ability at best, for whom he built an opera house and forced her to embark on a humiliating career. It's a dazzling opening ten minutes, setting up Kane as a towering figure of staggering wealth, but also a man who died alone and aloof. And I think this is one of the main reasons why Citizen Kane remains relevant and powerful today. Kane is a man who had everything and yet nothing. In 1941, this was a bold and subversive theme, to present the American dream of wealth, success and power as being empty, meaningless. Kane collected things and people, but for reasons we will slowly discover, he was unwilling or perhaps even incapable of finding happiness. We may dislike Charles Foster Kane from the outset, but we're fascinated by him may be even compelled to feel some sympathy as the screenplay spins back to his poor childhood and recounts events that made him one of the richest men in the world by the age of 25. Now, there have been many, many Charles Foster Canes in the movies over the years, and for me, the most memorable is Daniel Plainview, the oil man played by Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. 
the 2007 drama by director Paul Thomas Anderson, that many critics voted as the best film of the year and the decade. The personality of Kane and the business empire he creates is strikingly relevant today. His first foray into media is with the struggling New York Inquirer newspaper. Kane chooses sensationalism over substance to boost circulation, yellow journalism or tabloid journalism to give it the common names. It's a wildly successful move that eventually makes him the USA's most powerful media magnate and increases his political influence. He may have been an amalgamation of real-life moguls, such as William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, whom audiences of the day would have been familiar with, but for every generation since the release of Citizen Kane, there have been media magnates whose business methods and personal lives have drawn strong parallels with aspects of Charles Foster Kane. We've had Lord Lugrade, or Lowgrade, as he was called by some of his critics, Robert Maxwell, the Italian publisher and Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi and his infamous Bunga Bunga parties. And closer to home here in Australia, the Packer Empire, Sir Frank, Kerry and James. And the Murdoch family, well, former Australian citizen in the case of Rupert Murdoch, who started out with just the little old Adelaide advertiser all those years ago and built an empire, including the so-called news channel Fox News. The acclaimed HBO series Succession, about venal and vicious machinations inside a media family, comes directly from the Citizen Kane playbook and bears remarkable similarities with certain media dynasties of today. It's as if Charles Foster Kane has always existed in that junction between myth and reality, fact and fiction, and he probably will forevermore in film and television. Now, back to the film. As Thompson the journalist continues his investigation into the meaning of Rosebud, we meet the support players in Kane's life. That's all anyone could ever hope to be, an extra or a possession, like the thousands of artworks he acquired and never looked at again, as if knowing that he owned it and somebody else didn't was all that mattered. First of all, there's Kane's best friend, Jed Leland, played by Joseph Cotton. He's a reporter for The Inquirer and acts as the conscience of the film. Then there's Kane's first wife, Emily, played by Ruth Warwick, who was married six times herself in real life. Emily's deteriorating relationship with Kane is shown in a brilliant series of camera pans and edits, with the characters sitting at the same kitchen table, but over the course of many, many years. Everett Sloan plays Bernstein, Kane's loyal business advisor who overlooks all of Kane's faults and gives him unconditional love because he's come closer than anyone to understanding the darkness in Kane's heart and soul. But most importantly, there's Susan Alexander, portrayed by Dorothy Commingmore. She was discovered by Charles Chaplin and only had bit parts under the name Linda Winters before landing the role of her life in this film. Susan is the film's innocent at first. Kane's initially attracted to her because she doesn't recognize him and presumably doesn't want anything from him. It's what Kane wants Susan to be that destroys her, insisting she become an opera singer despite not possessing the requisite talent and building a grand theater for her to perform in, one that becomes a prison of humiliation. Unlike the untalented Susan Alexander, Dorothy Commingmore is superb in the role that made her immortal on the screen but also destroyed her life and career. The popular notion has always been that Susan Alexander was based on Marion Davies, the young mistress of William Randolph Hearst. 
Hearst even formed a production company, Metropolitan Pictures, to promote her career. Davies was actually a skilled comedian, but Hearst wrecked her career by insisting she appear in stodgy historical dramas. Although Wells always denied Davies was the inspiration, and he always publicly praised her talents, Hearst went for Dorothy Commonmore with a vengeance. Her left-wing political leanings were all he needed to ruin her career, eventually driving her into a state mental home, alcoholism, and a tragic early death aged just 58. Stories such as the fate of Dorothy Commingmore go beyond the film, but over time they've become part of the film. That's what happens so often with movie classics or cult films. The stories behind them are something we take with us when we watch the film. Think of Apocalypse Now, for example, with all those tales about Marlon Brando and the apocalyptic filming conditions. Knowing about these things can affect how you see the film. Once you even know a little bit about W.R. Hearst, Marion Davies, and the Hearst Castle that inspired Kane's Xanadu Mansion, their presence inhabits the picture, hovering in your mind as you watch Orson Welles and Dorothy Commingmore. If you want to know more about Hearst and Davies, I really recommend you seek out The Cat's Meow, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. It's a terrific drama about the 1924 death of producer Thomas Ince during a party on Hearst's yacht. It's got a fantastic cast, including Kirsten Dunst as Marion Davies and Eddie Izzard as Charles Chaplin. I deliberately haven't said much about the early sections of the film showing Charles Foster Kane as a boy, which also feature the great Agnes Moorhead as his mother. If you haven't seen the film, these segments are best encountered with as little knowledge and information as possible, I promise you. It's not just a sweeping story of Citizen Kane that helps it stand up so well 79 years after it was released. It's technically very impressive, with superb editing and cinematography standing out. The editor was Robert Wise, who became a very successful director and won Oscars for West Side Story and The Sound of Music. Wise cut the film in non-linear fashion, with the timeline of Kane's life jumping backwards and forwards, creating a mosaic that we piece together as part of the viewing experience. This kind of non-linear editing has been common since the 70s and reached new heights with films such as Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. But in Hollywood at the time, it was rare to find anything much more complex than simple flashback sequences. The dialogue, too, is delivered at a rapid-fire rate. Wells's background in radio is evident here. This was common in screwball comedies of the times, but not in weighty, serious dramas such as this. Though it also has to be said that Citizen Kane does have its fair share of amusing moments. One of the very few things about Citizen Kane that reminds us of its age is the frequent use of wipes in editing, where one shot replaces another by moving from one side of the frame to another. We don't see wipes used much these days, or fades to black for that matter. The emphasis nowadays is on hard and increasingly faster cutting to hold the attention of contemporary audiences. A lot has been said about the brilliant cinematography of Greg Toland. Wells even placed Toland on the same frame as him in the credits, so highly did he regard his work. It's true that Toland's deep focus photography, which allowed everything in the frame to remain in focus regardless of how far it was from the camera, is truly extraordinary and it's used for powerful emotional effect. 
The same can be said for his stark lighting of sets such as the echoey empty halls of Xanadu and the massive fireplace that stands taller than Cain himself. Many of these camera and lighting techniques had been used in earlier films, such as Nosferatu, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and other German silent classics. But, like the non-linear editing, they hadn't been used quite like this in a big, mainstream Hollywood film. Wells and Toland adopted and adapted techniques and methods from everywhere, bringing European stylistic touches to this very American story and helping it to remain visually stimulating and striking even today. In more recent times, we've seen filmmakers such as Quentin Tarantino bringing elements of Asian action movies and spaghetti westerns to his films with thrilling results. In their own way, Wells and Toland brought that kind of world cinema to Hollywood almost 80 years ago. Watching Citizen Kane today is like viewing a timeless masterpiece in an art gallery, something that time simply can't touch. As long as movies are being watched, talked about, and taught about at schools and universities, Wells' film will be part of the conversation. Wells was far from a one-hit wonder. He directed and often starred in great films like The Magnificent Ambersons, his 1942 follow-up at RKO, and it was drastically cut by the studio. There was The Trial from 1962, an adaptation of Franz Kafka's classic novel. Mr. Arkadin in 1955 was a fascinating Citizen Kane-like tale of a mysterious millionaire. And then there's his 1958 crime masterpiece, Touch of Evil, which for me is his second best film and comes very close to rivaling Citizen Kane. In fact, everything with Wells' name on it is worth watching. Even his lesser films offer extraordinary moments. He appeared just as an actor in lots of terrible films like Butterfly in 1982, but that was always because he wanted to raise money for his own projects, and that's forgivable for an artist such as Wells. You can watch Citizen Kane on Prime Video, and if you're interested in films about Citizen Kane, I recommend seeking out RKO 281, starring Lee Schreiber as Wells. There's also Me and Orson Welles, starring Zac Efron and Claire Danes. And finally, there's a wonderful, wonderful scene in Tim Burton's film Ed Wood, which stars Johnny Depp as the famously inept filmmaker Ed Wood. Look out for the moment when Wood has a deep and meaningful conversation with Orson Welles, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. It's truly magical. You know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow. You're listening to The Classic Film Club. With Richard Kuypers. Now to our discovery spot, where I take a look at special and important films that aren't those world-famous titles we've all heard of, and they've sometimes just slipped out of view and become another title you could easily pass by on the menu of Netflix or Prime or Stan. When there are so many thousands and thousands of films out there, it can be really hard to find the real gems, and that's exactly why I'm here. Some listeners will already know and love these films, and I couldn't be happier to celebrate that with you. For others, I hope these Discovery films might be exciting new movie treasures that come into your view. There's something I really love about British cinema from the late 1950s to the mid-1970s, and my Discovery pick for this week comes from the middle of that, from 1968. It won the Grand Prix at Cannes and was named by the British Film Institute as the 12th greatest British film of the 20th century. It was the start of a loose trilogy that followed the eventful life of a man named Mick Travis. Malcolm McDowell, soon to be famous as Alex Delage in Clockwork Orange, 
made his debut as Michael Travis in If. If tells the story of three students leading a violent rebellion at a repressive boys' boarding school. The year it was made is very important. If was filmed while the May 1968 riots in Paris were in full force, and it carries that anti-establishment fury in every single frame. The director, Lindsay Anderson, co-founded the British free cinema movement of the 1950s, and he succeeds in If in creating a scathing satire of the British class system and conservative institutions with this heavily allegorical drama. The basic story finds Mick returning to an unnamed school for his second last year, year 11 for us in Australia. He and his best friends Knightley and Wallace are idealists and dreamers who just don't fit into the discipline and the strict hierarchy of the school, where the seniors, or whips as they're known, have special privileges, including scum. Scum are junior boys who serve them basically as slaves. The headmaster, the school chaplain, and most of the teachers represent British conservatism and authority. As the term progresses, Mick and his friends run deeper and deeper into trouble and are eventually given a brutal caning by the whips. That's when they decide to really rebel. Where it goes from there is something to behold. At one moment, if is gritty British realism. The next moment, it becomes surreal, even dreamlike, especially when Mick and Knightley steal a motorbike and drive to a roadside cafe where Mick has an unforgettable encounter with an unnamed waitress played by the incredible Christine Noonan, whom you'll never forget once you see this. There's one particular look she gives to Mick from across the counter. It's simply incredible, and it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it and talking about it now. I first saw Riff when I was a rebellious teenage schoolboy, and it spoke to me very loudly. It's one of those films that changed my life and inspired me to think about the institutions that govern our lives. I must have seen it at least 10 times on the big screen in the 70s and 80s, and I even wagged school when Channel 7 broadcast it as a midday movie. I watched it for the first time in about 15 years just recently. Always a risk with movies, music, books, anything you've loved from childhood and early adulthood in case it doesn't stand up anymore. All these years later, If still packs a huge punch and it's lost none of its edge. It's a timeless, dateless film that's still radical in form and content and still has the power to inspire us to challenge the status quo and think about authority. As surreal as it sometimes gets, If Always Rings True. The screenplay by David Sherwin was based largely on his memories of attending Tonbridge School in Kent, founded in 1553, would you believe? And it was filmed at Lindsay Anderson's old school, Cheltenham College. It has a wonderful support cast, including Arthur Lowe as the housemaster, Peter Jeffrey as the headmaster, and Mona Washbourne as the school nurse. Importantly, the soundtrack also really helps this film in its timelessness and its datelessness. It doesn't have rock and roll or pop songs from the era. It uses African Sanctus, a beautiful recording of African Sanctus, as its key musical theme, and it brings something incredibly special to the atmosphere and the aura of this film. Malcolm McDowell played the character of Mick Travis in two more films directed by Lindsay Anderson and written by David Sherwin, Oh Lucky Man in 1973 and Britannia Hospital in 1982. 
Though not strictly sequels, they followed Travis as an English everyman, negotiating his way through a country that is sometimes cruel, sometimes glorious, and always fascinating. Many people, myself included, regard O Lucky Man as at least the equal of If, and, like If, it's one of the greatest British films of all time. It's a magnificent, unforgettable three-hour odyssey, which also features Helen Mirren, Arthur Lowe, Sir Ralph Richardson, and many other cast members from If, including the magnificent Christine Noonan. Finally, to my Trash and Treasure Corner, where we highlight the very best in B-movies, exploitation films, and other trashy delights. Never feel guilty about your guilty pleasures, that's my motto. And today, I'd like to introduce you to a great little horror thriller from 1985 called The Stuff. The premise is fantastic. A new dessert ice cream called The Stuff has been launched onto the market. It's a smash hit and everyone just can't get enough of the stuff. But naturally, nothing that good could be good for you, and there's a sinister secret to its success. The stuff was directed by Larry Cohen, one of the great exploitation filmmakers of the 70s, 80s and 90s, who cranked out gems like the demonic cop thriller God Told Me To and Q, The Winged Serpent which is one of the best monster movies of the 80s. In fact, I think it's one of the best monster movies of all time. Like all of Larry Cohen's best films, the stuff is very witty and very clever. Beneath the crazy story of this mysterious ice cream lies a sharp critique of corporate ethics and political corruption. It's got a great cast, with Cohen regular Michael Moriarty, Kathy's brother, playing an industrial saboteur who gets in way over his head. And Paul Salvino also plays a scary military type. You can see the stuff on Prime. It's great fun. A real drive-in movie treat that might just send you down the rabbit hole of discovering more of Larry Cohen's terrific work. And on that note, I'm about to sign off, but not before thanking you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this meeting of the Classic Film Club, and I'm looking forward to our next cinematic adventure. Bye for now. You can't go now. Work here is done. I love a happy ending. You've been listening to The Classic Film Club with Richard Kuypers. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.